We open your Bibles to Acts, the 20th chapter. We'll look at an introductory verse there and go over to 1 Timothy, the third chapter, which will be our text for tonight. But we'll begin at Acts 20 and then go to 1 Timothy 3. We appreciate our ladies are always active, doing good. And uh, Saturday morning, they uh, gathered together for a wonderful time of encouragement and and organizing some of the year's events. And we appreciate... Uh, Sissy Pickler speaking at that, and I understand that she did a tremendous job, and we appreciate each of our ladies that uh, participate in, in encouraging each other in so many acts of service. If you'll really stop and consider it, in almost any congregation of the Lord's people, there are more faithful women than there are faithful men. And that might be a good thing for some of us men to stop and think about, and why is that so? Uh, but we appreciate you ladies so much, and And we hope that as men, we are an encouragement to you. You definitely, in your faithfulness and service, are an encouragement to us. Also, we want to continue to remember in our prayers and our our thoughts and our actions uh, the Cox family. Uh, Miss Royce Cox, a wonderful, wonderful lady that leaves uh, with us many great memories, uh, much love and appreciation uh, for her and for the family. Uh, definitely comes from this congregation, and uh, we we extend our sympathy to the family and and uh, hope you know that we love and appreciate you, and we want to help you in any way we can during this time. How do you make a deacon? It's interesting when Paul was speaking to the elders of Ephesus. He said it was the Holy Spirit that made them. Notice in Acts, the 20th chapter, as we read in verse 28, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves. So this is Paul speaking to the elders, saying, You take heed to yourselves. In other words, each elder takes heed to each elder. And then he says to all the flock among which, now notice this, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, how do you think it was that the Holy Spirit made these men of Ephesus that served in the office of elder or sometimes described as bishop or shepherd? How is it that he made them to be overseers? It's not that he came down and miraculously did anything. It's that they heeded to the revelation that was given by the Holy Spirit. As we think about the office of elder and then the office of deacon, we must be reminded and aware of the fact that Man didn't design these offices. This organization is by God. The descriptive terms that describe these offices are terms that are given by God. And very important for tonight's study, I need to realize that even the qualifications that an individual must fulfill to come into this office are God-given qualifications. So if the Holy Spirit inspired me to write these pages so that we could learn about this organization, so we could see the descriptive terms that describe these men, and then the qualifications that must be followed for a man to come into that office, and we obey that. In that same sense, today, the Holy Spirit is still making men to be deacons and to be elders as men submit to that way. And so tonight, let's go to 1 Timothy, the third chapter. 1 Timothy, the third chapter, is a very, very important passage in the New Testament. For it's in this passage that we see the only qualifying descriptions that are given to the office of deacon. Titus will also mention a few in the first chapter by Paul writing to Titus of that of a bishop or that of an elder. 
But Paul writing to Timothy in the third chapter is the only time that we see these qualifying uh, characteristics or attributes that a man must have in order to serve in that office are given. And so let's begin reading, and then we'll go back and work phrase by phrase through this important text. He begins in verse 8 by saying, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And then Paul's conclusion to this topic. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul begins this paragraph by saying likewise. In other words, I suppose he's referring back to the fact that he's already referred to one office that was God-given and then the qualifications that a man must have to serve in that. And so now he's saying, in a like manner, let me speak about a second office. They're very different. A deacon is not an elder and an elder is not a deacon. But in a likewise, he's saying, let me speak about another office and let me speak giving the qualifications that must be. Notice also, as we read in verse 8, he says, likewise, deacons, must be. That's another thing that's similar to that of the elder. In other words, when he spoke of the qualifications of an elder, he said that a man must have these things. And now, as he begins the qualifications of a deacon, he says again, a man must have these things. Now notice, it doesn't say that the entire deaconship must include these things. In other words, one man might not be reverent, but another man might. And so you put them together, and together as a deaconship, they fulfill these qualifications. No. Each man must fulfill each one of these qualifications. And so let's work through these, not being able to spend that much time on each individual one, but nevertheless studying this paragraph as a whole tonight. Number one, he says, deacons must be reverent. Now it's interesting as we see this word also in Philippians, the fourth chapter in verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble. New King James. The King James translation would say whatsoever things are honest. The King James, going back to the text, would say grave. So we have, just in two translations, the same word used at two different places using four descriptive terms to describe the one Greek word that is there. In other words, he's saying that man must be grave, that man must be noble, that man must be trustworthy, that man must be reverent. And if I could add one more descriptive term, not to change the Scriptures, but just to describe what these four terms are describing, they're describing a man that is respected. A man that is going to be a deacon, before he is qualified to serve in the office of the deacon, he must be a man that has conducted himself in a truthful way, in an honest way, so that he has gained the respect of those about him. Now think how important that is if a man's going to go about and he's going to conduct business, if you will, church business, in the name of the church, how important it is for him to represent the church in a way that would be with dignity or with respect. 
All of us need to realize that this is true for each of us as individuals, as Christians and faithful Christians. We represent the Lord's church. We are His body. Every deacon must realize that in even a way that is magnified, you too represent the Lord's church in every item of business you conduct, whether it's personal or if it is in the name of the church. And so it's important for the man that is going to be qualified to serve as a deacon, he must have a noble character about him an honesty that would bring respect not only to his life, but to the church of which he represents. Notice the second thing in verse 8. Not only does he say they must be reverent, but he says that man must not be double-tongued. Other translations would translate this word in a positive sense. In other words, the New King James says not double-tongued. Others would say that he must be sincere. Coming from both angles, we see the definition of that. And just a note of interest, this is the only time in all the New Testament that this Greek word is used. The idea of sincerity is for one to have one voice. The idea of not being double-tongued is for one to not have two tongues or two voices. It's important for a man that's going to be in an office of leadership to realize the responsibility that he has to take whether something is truth or if it's rumor, that no matter what it is, he doesn't use that information to divide the church. Leaders are going to have information given to them from time to time that is somewhat confidential, if not totally confidential. And it's wrong for a man to take information from one group and speak with a single tongue there, but yet turn around to another group and double that tongue and say things that cause division instead of unity. We must recognize, number one, how much the Lord loves unity. In John 17, before Jesus left this earth, the one thing that he prayed for over and over was for his believers to be one. He wanted us to be united in him. And we all, all of us here this evening, need to remember the important responsibility that we have to never allow murmuring, complaining, gossiping, And for that matter, to even allow the truth to be something that we use it in an impure and through false motives to divide. A man, if he's going to be qualified to be a deacon, that man cannot be one that has used his tongue to divide God's people. A third thing that he says is not given to much wine. Now, it is interesting to note that when he speaks just a few verses up in the third chapter, in verse 3, the qualification of the elder, he says, not given to wine. In some cultures, it's interesting to note how wine is a common beverage of the day, even among teenagers. I remember studying one time with a fella in, in a jail ministry, and this individual had grown up in Italy. And we were studying from the Scriptures Uh, about things such as this and about drinking and drunkenness. And he just says to me, Now in my culture, people drink on a daily basis and you rarely see them drunk in their homes. You Americans can't control yourselves. It'd be better for you not to drink at all. And I said, You know, I think you're right about that. 
Uh, we do have a problem with that in America, and it's seen over and over throughout our society, the dangers of alcohol. What a shame it would be if the stumbling block for someone to become one that not only is drinking, but is even now having problems with alcohol and a drunkard and someone say, well, how did you even get started on that? Well, I used to go out lunch every day with one of the deacons over at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, and that's how I got started on that. What a shame. You know how many people are alcoholics when they're asked, where did you take your first drink? The percentage is pretty high. Some of you are probably already thinking it. A high percentage of alcoholics took their first drink as a teenager in their own house. They drunk mother and daddy's alcohol. What a shame it would be if someone was an alcoholic and they said, I took my first drink from daddy's hiding place. He's a deacon at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. When we look what the Lord said in Romans, the 14th chapter through Paul, in verses 21 through 23, He says here, It's not good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul gives us a reminder in Romans 14 and also in 1 Corinthians the 8th chapter how important it is for us to recognize the heavy weight of responsibility that each of us has to not cause others to stumble into sin. And so it is. We see that one of the qualifications of a man that's going to serve as a deacon is one that needs to take heavy that responsibility to not be one that is a stumbling block to others. Let's read on now. We're in 1 Timothy, the third chapter in verse 8, and he says, not greedy for money. It's interesting that this exact phrase is mentioned earlier as he talks about the qualifications of the elders, and then also the exact phrase again is mentioned over in the other qualifications that are listed in Titus, the first chapter, also of an elder. The point is the emphasis on how serious it is for any of us to become people that are materialistic, that what drives us is materialistic gain, or what in 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, if you want to look over at verse 10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. God says a man can't serve in the office of elder and a man can't serve in the office of deacon if what drives him in his life is money. A man that is greedy is a man that is not qualified to serve as a deacon. Now that enough is said because God said it clearly and plainly. Now we could make some observations of maybe the dangers of a man that was greedy. Number one, we just read in 1 Timothy 6 that a man that is greedy has a love of money and that pulls people away from their faith. So number one, that man's going to eventually be unfaithful if he doesn't stop that. And so that's reason enough for a man not to serve as a deacon. But a second thing that you'll note, when someone is greedy of money, they tend to do the things that creates the money and they seem to neglect the things that don't create money. Have you ever noticed that? 
Have you noticed if a man's greedy for money, he tends to not spend the time with his own family that he ought to spend with them because his family doesn't make him money? Have you ever noticed that even his extended family, if it comes to family reunions or get-togethers, he just seems to always have to be at work because those things don't make him money? Have you ever seen a man that would serve in the office of deacon and yet be greedy? He just seems to never get around to fulfilling his ministry, I would suppose. Because after all, it doesn't pay what he's looking for. He's looking for temporal, earthly pay. He's not looking for eternal pay. And so it is. A man that is greedy is not going to be productive in the things that matter the very most. Now, when we read on here, we see in verse 9 that he says, "...holding fast the mystery of faith with a pure conscience." Holding the mystery. That mystery has been revealed. The last few verses of Romans, the 16th chapter, tell us that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed as it has been written. And so we see that the mystery of the gospel, in other words, the text that has been written, is now to be held. Now every deacon, if a man's going to be qualified to be a deacon, he has to have the right container to hold the Word of God. Well, what is that container? That container is a pure conscience. The conscience is within an individual, and that conscience is what is, becomes a standard of what is right or wrong. It's somewhat that inner voice of the heart that says, what you're participating in is, is good, you ought to continue in that. Or that voice that says, that's wrong, you ought to feel some guilt for doing that. Well, who is going to form the conscience of a man that is qualified to be a deacon? We know that it has to be the Scriptures, because he says a pure conscience, and the only way we can have a pure conscience is for our conscience to be formed by God. Now, not only is that man, does he have that container, if you will, that pure conscience to hold the Scriptures, but notice also he, in turn, is holding to the Scriptures. It's so important to have elders that are dedicated to the Word of God, that spend their time studying the Word of God and in prayer. But friends, I want you to note something this evening. We've made a horrible mistake if we think that elders deal with spiritual things and deacons only deal with physical things, and in that we form some kind of uh, conception in our mind that all they need to be is just good physical men to carry out work, and they really don't have to be that much spiritually. That's so far from the truth. God says, before I want a man serving in the office of a deacon, I want him to be a spiritual man that is clinging to the Word of God and he will not turn loose of God's will. A man that's going to be a deacon needs to know the Scriptures. He needs to cling to the Scriptures. He needs to have a conviction that forms a pure conscience. Now, we note as we go into the next verse, he says, But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as a deacon. What do you think this testing is? Some have said, I believe that this testing is that, that we need to see if they fulfill these qualifications. Well, now, surely all of us would agree that that needs to be done, that a man needs to be tested to see if he fulfills these. But you know what seems to be given here, since it's right in the middle of these qualifications, it seems to be more so of what he's saying is that this man needs to be tested to see if he's going to be the kind of man that will serve as a deacon. 
In other words, the word deacon means servant. In other words, has this man already proven in his life that he is a servant? Can you imagine taking someone that's never invested any time or energy into the Lord's kingdom and then saying, well, you know, I think he'd make a great deacon. Let's, let's put him into office. Has he proven that that's where his heart is? Has he proven that he's willing to make the sacrifice of time and maybe even the expense of money? Has he proven that he's willing to take on that responsibility? Paul writes to Timothy, and in these qualifications, he says... You make sure that that man has been proven that that's the type of servant he is. And then he closes that verse by saying that he may be found blameless. Now that's interesting. If there's any of these qualifications that you can almost count upon being misused from time to time, this is one of them. Blameless doesn't mean that the person has never committed wrong. Absolutely doesn't mean that the person is perfect. And absolutely doesn't mean that the person has not been accused of things. If I recall correctly, the only man that was perfect on this earth was accused day in and day out of doing wrong. He's violated the Sabbath. He's blasphemed God and on and on and on. He was blamed. But yet, he was blameless. When we think of Peter, turn back to Galatians, the second chapter. We see a man in Galatians, the second chapter. It's one of those little stories that was not little at the time. It was huge. And when you read this, I know a lot of us in this auditorium, Peter's got to be one of our favorite passages. And we read this, we almost cringe for poor old Peter. We just want to pat him on the back and say, I'm sorry, buddy, it'll get better. Everybody makes mistakes. He makes a terrible mistake here. The scars and the wounds of prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles, the barrier had been so high, and finally the church was working through this, and now Jews were actually sitting down and they were eating with Gentiles, and things were looking better. It had taken so many years for this to happen. And all of a sudden, one of the greatest leaders of the New Testament church is sitting there eating with some Gentiles, and he looks down the road, and he sees James, and other Jews coming, and let's see it as we read here in Galatians, the second chapter. Look at verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because, and notice this, Paul says, by inspired writings here, he says, for he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite. You see, that's what he was here. Peter was being a hypocrite. And not only did he do wrong, but he led others to do wrong also. Because as we read on, we see that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So we see that now not only has he done wrong in getting up and moving, but Barnabas and other Jews have. And Paul says, there's only one thing I can do. I stand up and before the whole crowd, he says, I rebuked him face to face. Why did you do that, Paul? That had to be embarrassing to poor old Peter. He says he was to be blamed. It needed to be confronted so this issue of, of prejudice didn't grow higher and higher. Well, I tell you what. 
That X's him off the chart of ever being a, an elder because that's the first qualification that's listed in 1 Timothy 3. He has to be blameless. That X is him. He can never be a deacon because in holy writing, that man was blamed and found guilty. That's how a lot of people practice it. As a matter of fact, I remember several years ago, a man was put up to be serving as a deacon. This man and his wife committed fornication before they got married. Not long after their marriage, their baby was born and talk spread all through the church. They repented of their sins and they confessed them. And through the years, people that called themselves Christians wouldn't forgive and forget. About a decade later, that man had lived a righteous life and his family also. That man was asked if he would serve as a deacon. And wow, did the blame come in. Can you imagine that? But it has to be that way because if anybody's ever committed a wrong and they've been found guilty in that wrong, they are not blameless, so forget it. Mark it off. They can't ever be a deacon if they've committed sin. I wonder how many we'd have here qualified to be a deacon if you had to be perfect. If you know the Bible, you know the rest of the story. 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, verse 1, Peter addresses the elders and he says, of which I am one. Peter was guilty. He was blamed. But Peter repented of that. And years later, as he was appointed as an elder of the Lord's church, someone could come up to him and say, I remember what you did, and he could say, You're right, but I am not to be blamed of that today. I've repented of that. I've turned away from that, and I'm no longer that person. Friends, it's not a problem that we're addressing right now qualifications of deacons. It's a problem of us not having the attribute of God. He says, I'll forgive and I'll move on. If a man is guilty of sin and he is continuing to practice that sin, absolutely, he is to be blamed. But blameless doesn't mean that you've never been accused as we've already said, Jesus was accused. But when people approached Jesus, he could answer their accusations. And if a man has repented of sin and moved into righteousness in his life, he will be accused from time to time, but he can answer those accusations. And so that's what it means to be blameless. It means in the life that we're presently living, we can answer any past accusations with the fact that we have repented and we're no longer that person. As we go back to our text in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, we see that we move now to the wives in verse 11. He says, Likewise, their wives, 
most believe that this not only is speaking about the deacon's wives, but also the qualification that an elder's wives must have also. And he mentions four things, very similar to some of the things that have already been said of deacons and elders. He uses the first qualifications for the deacon's wife as he used also for the deacon himself, and that is that he must be reverent. In other words, that woman must conduct her life in such a way that she is noble, that she is honest, in such a way that it would bring respect to the Lord's church and not a dishonor to the Lord's church. Secondly, he addresses again, just as he did next with the deacons themselves, the tongue. This time to the wife, he uses a little bit different word, but he says, not to be slanders. How important it is. How important it is that we control our tongue. I think most of us here in this congregation are aware of the benefit it is to be in a congregation where people love God enough and love each other enough that this isn't a problem in this congregation. Now, I know and you know that we're not a perfect group of people and we all can do better in this area, but it's wonderful that that's not a noted characteristic of this congregation. We need to make sure that, that elders and that deacons realize that they set the standard. I believe with all of my heart, if you can take a group of elders and their wives and deacons and their wives that don't gossip, they don't backstab and backbite at each other. I believe that that sets a tremendous tone in the congregation. Let's let that always be the case. If a man's wife is such that she cannot control her tongue, it would be a blessing to the entire congregation if that man did not serve because that man is not qualified according to the Scriptures. The third thing we see is that the word temperate, in other words, sober. When we think about soberness, an oversimplification, if you will, of, of defining this word is simply thinking before we talk or thinking before we act. We're responsible for our actions. We're responsible for our words. It's not enough to go through life making mistakes and constantly saying, oh, I just wasn't thinking. God says, before a man's placed into office, make sure he's a man that thinks. And before he's placed into office, make sure he has a wife that thinks before they act and thinks before they speak. And then finally, he says about the wives, faithful in all things. Friends, a deacon's wife has to be one that is faithful to God in all areas of spiritual life. She has to be faithful to her family and to her husband in all areas of family life. She has to be faithful to the congregation. Now note this, leaders and, and wives of leaders. When we're faithful to the entire congregation, that means that we're not faithful to a clique over here and we neglect a clique over here. That's what forms cliques. If we're going to be faithful to all, it means that we don't see prejudice. We see each individual as a soul and a part of the body of Christ. Now, Quickly, let's close this as we're running out of time. Look what he says in verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. Now, as we think about this qualification, it's very clear in the Scriptures how important marriage is to God. He clearly defines what marriage is. And even though we're in a society that seems to be losing the vision of these boundaries that God gives, we cannot in the church lose that boundary. As a matter of fact, in the first century church, that had been lost in many areas. And no doubt, 
no doubt that was something that was difficult with them as polygamy and other things were so rampant because of a pagan society. Not only is he teaching here that they are to be the husband of one wife, but he is also, when we go in and start doing word studies on the Greek, he's saying that they must be a one-woman man. In other words, not only do they have only one wife, but they are faithful to that one wife. A man could have only one wife, but yet if he was known for, for being one that was always looking at other women or always lusting or etc., he's not qualified to be a deacon. This man has to have that one wife and be faithful to her. That's his reputation. That's who he is. That's what he is. But then notice he also speaks about the children. Look in verse 12 following ruling their children and their own houses well. So this man has to be, number one, he has to be a man. Number two, he has to be married. Number three, he has to have children. Now, he has to rule these children well. Ephesians 6 and 4 tells us that God's man is not going to provoke his children to anger and he's going to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. In other words, if a man's going to be qualified to be a deacon, he has to be a man that is the spiritual leader of the home. You know, there are a lot of homes where the woman is the spiritual leader. That's not good that it's that way. It's good to have a woman that is strong and she can bear a heavy load of responsibility spiritually. That's great. But God designed the home so that the man would be the spiritual leader. He would be the one that would be setting the tone for that family to enter into heaven. Now, to be fair to the text, we need to note this. Titus would write in the qualifications of the elders, and he would say that not only should they have the children and rule well, but he would even say that he has to have believing or faithful children. The deacon does not have to have believing or faithful children. That lets us know that a deacon's children could be much younger. But it lets us know that the direction that he's leading his home is very, very important. If a man can't deal well with the most important responsibility that he's given him, first priority being his own home, how could he help take care of another body of people in service, in the ministry? Let's close this by looking at the summary that Paul placed here in verse 13. For those who have served well as deacon, obtain for themselves good standing and great boldness. It's interesting here that he talks about how a deacon serves. Does he serve well? And then he states that if he does, he could have good standing. And there's been a lot of debate about what that good standing is. Is it good standing with God? I would think so, because on the day of judgment, what God wants to be able to say to all of us is, well done, now good and faithful servant. And especially if a man's going to be in the office of service, How wonderful it would be, he would be in good standing with God for him to be able to say not only about him as an individual Christian, but also about his office that he has served. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Also, it's interesting to note that boldness. 
When we have God on our side, we can accomplish more than we could ever accomplish alone. And it's not a boldness so we pat ourselves on the back, but it's the boldness that says if, if I have God blessing my life and I'm a part of God's work, I can stand bold. Not because of my righteousness, but because of the cause that I am a part of. As we close this, I want you to think not only about deacons, but I want you to think also about our lives individually. The way that passage closes, it lets us know that God is going to hold deacons accountable. There's going to be a day of evaluating them. It's the day of judgment. But you know, there's also a day that we're all going to be held accountable. Everybody, not just religious people, everybody's going to be held accountable. A day where we will be judged on how we dealt with our life as stewards. How do we deal with the most important aspect of our life, our soul? How do we deal with the material things God gave us? How do we deal with the opportunities God gave us? How do we deal with the relationships God gave us? This evening, if you're not ready to stand before God and give an account for yourself as a steward, if you know that tonight you would not hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why don't you make things right with God so that you can leave here tonight prepared to be called a faithful servant on that day, but also so that we can go out tomorrow and be that faithful servant for the cause of Jesus Christ. There's no greater ministry or aspect of our life to be a part of than the Lord's church. If you've never been baptized in Christ for the remission of sins, or if you have but strayed from God, won't you consider coming back to him tonight? If we can help you anyway, come as we stand as we sing.